Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. I'm Steph, your host and founder of The Dietologist. Quick reminder, don't forget that we are approaching the end of 2022, which means it is time now to start preparing your eggs and sperm for 2023 conception, because remember, it takes a good 90 to 120 days for nutrition, lifestyle, and supplementation to make the most impact when it comes to the quality of eggs, sperm, and enhancing ovulation, implantation, and your chances of pregnancy for next year. So if you are interested in kickstarting those 2023 goals, head down to the show notes and get booked in for our signature two-hour fertility nutrition intensive with one of our award-winning expert fertility dietitians here at The Dietologist. It's all done on Zoom and partners are very, very welcome if you have one. We love to work with teams, so please bring them along and we will build you a bespoke nutrition and supplementation plan so you are giving yourselves and your future baby the very best start. So head to the link below and get booked in for a intensive consult with us. Now, without any further ado, today's episode is a topic that I get asked about in my DMs, in virtual clinic all the time. It is about progesterone and its role in the menstrual cycle, its role in conceiving, its role in IVF, and whether it has a role to play in miscarriage. So obviously a trigger warning today that we will be discussing miscarriage and pregnancy loss. So if that is a topic you'd rather not hear about, then skip past this episode. And I'm honored to have a very special guest from Perth, WA, Western Australia, Dr. Tamara Hunter, who is an expert fertility specialist. So cannot wait for you to listen to this interview. It is an absolute cracker. One of my favorite episodes we've done to date. Dr. Hunter's brain is incredible and the way that she explains things, I know you are just going to love. So do tune in and connect with her via the links in the show notes below as well. All right, let's get into it. Welcome, Dr. Tamara Hunter, Fertility Specialist to the Fertility Friendly Food Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Very welcome. It's lovely to be here. So before we get into the topic of today's podcast, I thought we would allow you to introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners so you can share a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you're from, and yeah, your passion for this area of reproductive health and fertility. 
Awesome. Thanks, Steph, so much for having me. Okay, so I am a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, and I live over here in Perth. I'm on the west coast of Australia. I am also a mama and I am a wife, so I'm a bit of a, a bit of a juggler. But I've worked in this field of fertility for around about 10 years. Um, I actually started off my career as an exercise physiologist. So I started in the corporate health space. Really, preventative health has always been my thing and it really underpins everything that I do in the world of fertility. I went back to medical school at the age of 25, really loved it, but in my final year of medicine, just embraced the concept of going into obstetrics and gynecology, had some really fantastic mentors in Canberra, and I just thought, right, I'm going to be an obstetrician gynecologist. I'm going to deliver all the babies in Perth, and that's going to be what I'm going to do. Um, I don't know if you know, ONG is a really long training program, and I got to about my fourth year of training and was really burnt out by obstetrics. I found it really challenging mentally and physically. And I was looking for something new and I met with a mentor of mine and kind of fell into the world of fertility and reproductive medicine and absolutely loved it. It truly is that space of innovation. There's new developments all of the time. Genomics is a, a booming area right now. Um, I, get, I get to work with males again, <laughs> which I hadn't done for quite a long time. Um, work in the paediatric gynecology space, menopause, recurrent miscarriage, oncofertility. And what was great about this space is that once again, I was embracing that whole truly holistic, multidisciplinary area of medicine, which is, is fertility. So I've worked um, predominantly in Perth for 10 years um, and yeah, love it. Love it every day. I love to hear it and I know our like listeners always love to hear from doctors with different backgrounds and come from different areas around Australia and around the world so it's great to hear from you today and today's topic is one that I know just before we hit record I can only imagine how many times you get these questions but I get these questions so much in both consultations and online on on the gram <laughs> And it's all about progesterone and its role that it has to play when it comes to conception and miscarriage. So it's one of those hormones and that we see so much popping up in those fertility Facebook forums, on Instagram, all that kind of stuff about getting pregnant and staying pregnant. But before we get into the role of progesterone in conception and pregnancy, can you tell us what what is progesterone? How is it made? Let's just go back to science class for a second so we can get some context for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So progesterone is a, it's a steroid hormone and it's only made in the human body. It's one of the group of sex hormones. So you know about estrogen and you know about androgens or those male hormones. Testosterone is the one most people know about. So it's one of the sex hormones. And progesterone is part of the group of progestogen hormones. So there's a, a number of different types of progestogens, but progesterone is the one that we know about. And, and it's probably the most important in that group. All of those sex steroid hormones actually are derived from cholesterol. Um, in fact, the progesterone group or progesterone is broken down to form the 
androgen groups, so the, the male hormone group, and those are further broken down to form the estrogen group. So, in fact, progestogens or progesterone is, is considered an intermediary a metabolite, so we use it to create other hormones. But in addition to being that metabolite, it uh, also has its own independent activities in predominantly the uterus uh, in, a, in a woman, in a female, um, but interestingly also in the brain as well. So it has some, some neuro effects. Now, where does it come from? It's produced mainly from the follicles within the ovary, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. And that happens from puberty right through until menopause, so in our reproductive years. It's also actually produced in the adrenal glands of both males and females. So men do produce a little bit of progesterone. And it's also produced in body fat and also the nervous tissue. Now, when a female is pregnant, it's also produced by the placenta. In fact, there's this beautiful... I guess, conversion from predominantly being produced by the follicles after ovulation, a woman or a female conceives, and then from about the eighth week of pregnancy, the placenta takes over the majority of the progesterone production. So there's this beautiful orchestra that happens through the menstrual cycle and then through pregnancy with production of progesterone. It's really interesting. Yes, and that transition is so, it is, yeah, it's it's like a orchestra, like you said. There's so much intricacy in those that transition for sure. So I'm sure we'll get into that. Now, in the context of the menstrual cycle, what is the role of progesterone, and when does it peak in the context of the menstrual cycle? Yeah, so I think probably what is important to understand is, I guess, what happens before progesterone is produced. So. Every single month, a female actually produces a group of eggs out of their storage, not, not just one. We always just talk about one, but actually there's a group of follicles that, that are released from the storage. And they grow during the first couple of weeks of the menstrual cycle, and they're producing estrogen in that time, the follicles. Eventually, one of those follicles will be recruited as the dominant follicle. There's lots of different chemical signaling that happens there. And that grows bigger. And that's the one that a lot of females will see on an ultrasound. And that becomes the dominant follicle. And then that will um, ovulate. And it's after ovulation that that follicle switches to something called the corpus luteum. And that corpus luteum is what produces the progesterone. So progesterone is the dominant sex hormone in the second half of the cycle after ovulation occurs. And um, that's when it kind of peaks and then it stays until it stays for the life of that corpus luteum. So what's really interesting about the ovulatory cycle is the front half of the cycle can vary by a number of weeks. Um, we talk about two weeks, but that's kind of just the expected average. But in fact, some women go for shorter periods of time, some go for longer. But what is absolutely set is that second two weeks after ovulation, the corpus luteum has a lifespan of two weeks. So it's it's that two weeks that the progesterone is predominant. And then as the corpus luteum kind of dies off after its two-week lifespan, 
their progesterone levels drop away and that then leads to uh, the endometrium or the lining of the womb being shed. So what the progesterone does is it converts that lining into its secretory phase when it's most going to be most receptive to a little embryo actually implanting in the lining. So that's in the menstrual cycle its main purpose. But what it also does really interestingly is that it makes the cervical mucus a lot thicker. Why is that really interesting? Well, what it does is prevent the sperm, extra sperm, from coming up into the reproductive tract. So it kind of acts as a little bit of a contraception in that second half of the cycle so that there is no other hostile sperm around that um, it therefore enables that little embryo to implant into the into the lining. So it's kind of in a in a weird kind of way, contraceptive within the second half of the cycle. Yeah, it's incredible how it's the body is so smart. <laughs> it's so much smarter than we give it credit for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I always think about how, like, I always, uh, it's so tricky, but I always think it's a miracle anyone has a normal cycle. Every time somebody gets pregnant, I'm just like, how, like the amount of things that have to go right in this domino effect is just mind-blowing. <laughs> oh, uh, even when you think about just, you know, how did I become a human? Well, I was, Oh, yeah, I do that I all was the time. one of 15 million sperm. <laughs> I mean, you know, right? Like, <sighs> you're right. Conception and pregnancy is an absolute miracle and we often just kind of take it for granted. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, yeah, uh, it, it's frustrating when you see people, for other people in your life where it's happening so easily, um, uh-huh. but it, it's, it's a miracle all the time. Um, oh, hey, Steph, a couple of other really interesting facts about progesterone. Yeah. Um, so progesterone is actually responsible for the thermogenic changes in a menstrual cycle. So, you know, when you do your, your biphasic temperature checking that a lot of women use to kind of monitor when they've ovulated. Well, it's actually the presence of progesterone that, that, that determines that, that, that temperature rise. So that's really fascinating as well, that it's, that it's progesterone that we're, the presence of progesterone that we're measuring when we're measuring temperature change. Um, it's also responsible for, I guess, um, the development of the breast tissue. So progesterone receptors themselves are uh, augmented by the presence of estrogen. So estrogen and progesterone have this really important interplay, but it's the progesterone that kind of matures uh, the development of the breast. And and this is all, all, all for women who are approaching menopause, it's really important for the integrity of our skin. So lack of progesterone actually leads to that thinning and atrophy of the skin as well. So it has mm. a huge amount of effects right throughout our, our um, reproductive years. Yeah, wow. And I always think of that thermogenic effect of progesterone in that rise in basal body temperature in that luteal phase of the menstrual cycle because I see so many people that are like, why am I so hungry before I get Mm. my period? Why do Mm. I need so much more food on these days? And I'm like, yeah, well, that tiny, tiny temperature increase actually (laughs) does increase your metabolic rate slightly. So pretty normal to have a little bit of an increase in appetite and we have to move away from this idea that we just uh, eat the same amount of food every day and feel satisfied on that especially as females we are actually quite dynamic in that way and Mm. that translates to many aspects of of lifestyle but I mean certainly I see it a lot in the food front um, in the luteal phase especially thanks progesterone 
I would be curious to hear a little bit about the neurological impacts of progesterone on the brain because I do also see quite a few people that have significant PMS or even premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. What's the role of progesterone when it comes to mood and, yeah, the psychoactive effects of it? Well, I guess I can talk to... um... I probably haven't done a lot of research in this area, but I can actually talk to the fact that different progestogens can act differently in the individual. So, for example, we know that if you think about the oral contraceptive pill, there's four generations, now five generations of progestogens in the different types of pills that are out there. People would have heard of things like microgynin and levlin and norimin and yaz, yasmin and zoli. There's all these different types of pills. And the reason that they're all different is because the progestogen is different. And each progestogen can do different things. Of course, they're all contraceptive in that they stop ovulation occurring, but they also have other effects. Some of them might have a little bit more of a, um, a, an anti-androgen effect so cyprodone acetate is in the Diane, Brenda, they're all the girls' names, range of pills uh, that actually reduce acne a little bit better. Um, some of them um, work um, from a mineral that so they can increase a little bit of water retention. So some people might find on a, a certain pill they might um, feel like they've gained weight, but they're probably just a little bit more edematous. And so they'll all act a little bit differently. So in answer to your question, um, each of the progestogen group can cause mood issues differently. One thing we do typically notice on the on the combined oral contraceptive pill is a slight flattening of the libido. And so that's thought to be due to progestogens, so just a flattening of the libido. And when we stop ovulation and stop that kind of swinging of the hormones, um, that can actually help to improve some women's PMS symptoms because it's actually the we think that it's the withdrawal of the progestogens that causes that significant mood change. And so by flattening out those hormones and not having a woman actually ovulate because um, that's the contraceptive effect of the pill, then uh, we think that that, that is, that is um, I guess, altering or flattening those mood swings that, that women will experience in that week or two just prior to the period. So it's a really complex interplay. Mm, fascinating. Now, switching gears slightly, and now let's talk about the role of progesterone when it comes to conception and pregnancy. What's its job? Wow, <laughs> that's a big one. It's actually got a that's a, it's, it's got a few jobs actually. So I talked before about how it kind of matures or changes the lining of the womb. So estrogen has gone and thickened up that line. I know a lot of women in fertility cycles are very concerned about their endometrial thickness, but it's not just about the how many millimetres it measures, but also how it changes in its function. So in that second half of the cycle after ovulation, you get this maturing of that lining. And there's four days called the window of implantation from day six to day 10 post-ovulation, which is where the endometrium is most primed to accept 
an embryo and, and progesterone is the hormone that makes that endometrium most receptive. So it's the phase, it's the, the phase is called the luteal phase or the phase of the corpus luteum and it's all about the production of progesterone. Um, it also actually helps to modulate the immune responses of the mother. So that makes the mother or the, the uterine environment more accepting or the, the immune system more accepting of the implantation of the embryo. And that, that's a whole nother, nother talk. That's a really complex area. It's also really important to decrease the contractility of the uterine muscle. So it helps to reduce miscarriage and also helps to prevent preterm labour. So we use progesterone or progestogens to help reduce that later on in pregnancy. And in fact, when you do drop your progesterone levels naturally in the later stages of pregnancy, it actually facilitates the onset of labour as well. So it's really, really important right throughout the pregnancy. And even in the postpartum, um, progesterone will inhibit lactation in pregnancy. So we don't want progesterone around in the early weeks postpartum because we want women to be able to produce breast milk. Yeah, incredible. And that transition, as we mentioned earlier, around eight weeks where we've gone from the, the, the female's body being primarily responsible for progesterone production to switching over to the placenta, is is it just like uh, I'm, I'm just visualising for people, is it a light switch situation or is it more like a titration situation where things are coming in and out and that interplay is quite complex? Yeah, so the corpus luteum has a lifespan and it really, once the pregnancy has been initiated, the hormone that the embryo and then the, the placental tissue is called HCG, that's your pregnancy hormone that you measure in the blood to say, oh, I'm pregnant and this is how pregnant. So HCG actually helps us to sustain the corpus luteum for the first several weeks. So there's this a gorgeous feedback that happens from the pregnancy to the corpus luteum to say, hey, produce more progesterone, produce more estrogen. So that, that's fantastic. Now, but that corpus luteum does eventually have a lifespan um, and the pregnancy itself will start to plateau in its production of HCG. So a lot of women, oh gosh, it must be around the 12th week, get quite concerned because they're, oh my goodness, my pregnancy hormone is, is plateauing. In fact, even earlier from about the 8th to the 12th week. So we actually say stop. So let's stop testing your HCG levels. You're well and truly pregnant now. Um, it's unhelpful and anxiety-provoking to continue testing your HCG levels uh, because they plateau. And once they start to plateau and then decrease, that corpus luteum's purpose is kind of done and dusted because the placental tissue will now be producing all of those important hormones that then maintain the pregnancy ongoing. Yeah, incredible. So cool. Very cool. Now, thinking about the role of progesterone in an IVF cycle, what's its job there? Is it most relevant to egg retrieval or transfer or both? And how is it, I guess, orchestrated in the context of we're controlling a lot of factors when it comes to an IVF cycle? Yeah, so I, um, I like to think of the IVF cycle in two parts. So there's the controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, which happens over those first couple of weeks where we're <clears throat> kind of 
I like to think about it as hitting a nail with a sledgehammer. We're giving you those those pituitary hormones, recombinant FSH, sometimes recombinant LH, in really high doses to kind of bang that nail and release a whole heap of or grow a whole heap of follicles all at once. You don't really want or need progesterone around at that stage. You really only want estrogen there to stimulate the growth of the lining, and that will happen from the growth of those many, many follicles. So, in fact, we're in a normal cycle, normal ovulatory cycle, where you're just producing one follicle. You'll peak out at about a measure of about 1,000. In an IVF cycle, you might peak out at about 10,000. So you've got these really high amounts of estrogen there. Then we give you that trigger. <laughs> and that's kind of the defining moment between part one and part two. So you get your trigger about 12 to 24 hours after that, you get that maturation of the follicles. They switch from producing predominantly estrogen to predominantly progesterone. And then you're getting progesterone production from those follicles. And that's when the progesterone becomes important because it's maturing the lining so that once those eggs are collected, and in the laboratory, they're mixed with sperm and embryos are being grown up in, in the laboratory. That progesterone in the body is doing its job to mature the lining so that we can allow a woman to have a fresh embryo transfer. So does that kind of answer the question? Yeah. What about in a frozen embryo transfer? So say somebody's got a bunch of embryos or maybe they go into ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and they need a bit of a break, or they're going to test their embryos. What's then the role of progesterone in the preparation for a frozen embryo transfer? Okay, so there's two things I think here is important to think about. Uh, there's, there's different types of frozen transfers. You can transfer an embryo in a woman's own natural cycle. We call that natural FET or natural frozen embryo transfer. You can, you can give a little bit of stimulation to those follicles to grow up one or two follicles so that you've got quite a bit of estrogen or a little bit more than, than physiologically normal estrogen around and therefore progesterone after they've ovulated. That's called a modified natural cycle. Or I can just simply give your lining, the estrogen, grow it up to a certain thickness and maturity, and then give you progesterone on top of that, and that's called an HRT FET cycle. So there's a few different ways that we can prime the uterus. Now, recent research is suggesting that the corpus luteum is really important for late pregnancy, particularly in the reduction of uh, preeclampsia risks. So... Uh, there is a thought that perhaps we should be doing more natural or modified natural cycles. Mm. But you can get just as good an outcome as far as a positive pregnancy test with an HRT, FET, as you can with a natural or a modified natural cycle. So we can give it to you in a kind of a physiological way or in a synthetic way. I just want to jump back to the fresh IVF cycle for a second um, because I think it's important for people to understand <clears throat> why we supplement in progesterone in an IVF cycle. Um, because it, you think to yourself, well, Tamara, you're producing all of these follicles. Why wouldn't you just rely on all the follicles to then produce the progesterone in the, as multiple corpora lutei to support the pregnancy? When you do an egg collection and you suck out the fluid out of the follicle and you're taking the egg, 
you're taking all of those cells, the granulosa and cumulus cells, out of the follicles, and they're the ones that produce the hormones. So if I'm stripping those follicles out, of uh, I'm therefore reducing their ability to produce enough progesterone in in the luteal phase to support the pregnancy. So we kind of have to supplement it back in. So women are often given um, gels like crinone or pessaries, progesterone pessaries. Some women are given intramuscular injections. Um, some women are given tablets to, I guess, support that endometrium in a fresh IVF cycle. Yeah. What happens if at baseline somebody has too little progesterone? What are the causes <clears throat> besides not ovulating, which would probably be one of the biggest ones I would I would guess <laughs> yeah so well that that's a good point it's a, it's a good measure isn't it in a tracking cycle for a woman to say ah actually you haven't ovulated by not having any progesterone around so it it is one of those biomarkers that we use to assess if someone has a normal or abnormal ovulatory cycle what happens if you don't have enough progesterone around i guess we're doing a blood test right and we're potentially measuring the progesterone in that window of implantation and we're coming up with a number and we're saying oh you've got too much or well, we don't we don't say you've got too much but you don't have enough that meets our threshold <clears throat> it's a surrogate for us to say you are at risk of not implanting an embryo you are at risk of not optimally maturing your lining so that if an embryo were to to see it, you're either not going to implant it all or you're potentially going to have a miscarriage. So you might get early implantation. The environment not, is not quite right for the embryo and so it will miscarry. It can also signify that perhaps there is something going on with the progesterone receptors. So, for example, if I have a woman who is uh, being supplemented with progesterone <clears throat> in that luteal phase, but she has spotting. So she's breaking through bleeding um, through the progesterone support. I do worry that perhaps there's something going on with the progesterone receptors because, remember, it's the interplay between the hormone and the receptors. It might not be the amount of progesterone that's the issue. It might be how the endometrium receives it. So there might be a, an inherent progesterone receptor issue. I think it's also then important to think about why it might be low. You know, is this due to disordered ovulation? Because your second half of the cycle is really dependent on how good the first part is, how good the priming of that follicle is. So it also raises some questions about poor ovulation. Is there any particular reproductive health concerns that you see a correlation with progesterone dysfunction, whether that be an issue with the progesterone receptors or an issue with progesterone levels reaching as high as we would like them to be from a fertility cycle standpoint? Because I do often get questions from a lot of my clients with particularly conditions like PCOS and also endometriosis and adenomyosis being very concerned about progesterone and how their body's responding to it. 100% Steph. So we know that in women who have disordered ovulation, whether that be polycystic ovarian syndrome or even a condition called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, which 
is due to, say, low body fat levels or too high exercise. We know that the luteal phase, the second half of the cycle, can be poor if they've got poor ovulation. So disordered ovulation definitely, definitely affects that receptivity in the second half. Um, and the other area is definitely endometriosis. We know by pathology that um, there's probably some progesterone receptor defect. That's why they have endometriosis. That's why they have the growth of the lining outside the place where it's supposed to be. So we do think that there is some inherent progesterone receptor issue. And it's not uncommon for us to see women who have endo have this spotting despite having progesterone support, uh, say, in a in an embryo transfer cycle. Yeah, so it's really It's important. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that will raise my bunny ears. If a woman is having spotting, I'm like, oh, do you have endometriosis as a cause of your infertility? Yep, yep, absolutely. I was reading this fascinating paper that was looking at the interplay between endometriosis, the chronic inflammatory state of it, and infertility and the like how this all works in. And it was so interesting. They, they proposed this like signaling pathway that the inflammation is feeding back into potentially some kind of what they termed as progesterone resistance uh, in, in the case of endometriosis. And it was just really interesting. I, I don't know how much like further evidence there is to back that up, but I just thought nothing is unconnected in these kinds of systems when we're talking about reproductive health. There's so much interplay between different hormone systems, bodily systems, um, and then you've also got dysfunctional systems, right, that all have this effect. Yeah, it's definitely an area of growing research. And, yeah, watch this space, I think. Yeah, super interesting. So a common question I'm often getting slid into my DMs is how do I boost my progesterone? And obviously as a fertility dietitian, they're asking what can I eat or not eat that's going to make a difference. From your perspective as a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, what do you say when your patients come and ask you that question outside of the context of medical, which we'll talk about in a second? Yeah, look, I, I don't think I've ever been in a consult where a man or a woman hasn't said to me, what can I do? You know, what can I do to help my situation? So really common question. Um, I think it's at the outset it's really important to understand that foods don't contain progesterone. Progesterone is a steroid hormone. It's produced in the animal body, in other words, in our human body. It's not something that we can supplement in. Uh, but some believe that certain foods, particularly those containing things like vitamin B6 and zinc, can help the body actually produce more progesterone or rather better balance because, <clears throat> excuse me, as I said before, estrogen is really important to prime progesterone receptors. So perhaps it, it might work in, in that context. But to be honest, there's really little evidence to, to support the use of specific foods. And, and you would understand this way better mm -hmm. than I would. There isn't really, as I understand, any single remedy either that can boost your, your natural progesterone levels. However, in saying that, there are lifestyle modifications. There's certainly things that people do in their lifestyle that change the menstrual cycle. We've just talked about that functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. So, therefore, there must 
by virtue of that, be ways that lifestyle can improve the menstrual cycle and also therefore the progesterone production. So there's biological plausibility in things like sleep, for example. Sleep being vitally important for us um, to maintain a normal ovulatory cycle. Stress management, I mean, that's a huge one. Everyone walks in and says, you know, how, how, how does stress impact? Well, we don't really understand it because everyone's experience of external stressors is completely different. Some people love public speaking. Some people hate it. <laughs> so, so it's really difficult for me to then go and measure how public speaking might impact on your stress levels. So, uh, but we do know that those stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, even endorphins, you know, this, the stress hormone from exercise uh, will impact on your ovulatory cycles. So we know that has a role. As you would know, moderating weight is, is hugely important, both particularly underweight uh, that impacts on ovulatory cycles. And as I alluded to, exercise with uh, that, that addictive hormone endorphin will, will impact. So those sorts of lifestyle factors will inadvertently impact on progesterone production. There is some limited research in the area of evening primrose oil and also chasteberry. Uh, it doesn't, there's not really any significant research in the fertility space. It's more rather in cycle control and menopause. So I, I yep. certainly suggest to my patients, if they've gone down that pathway to regulate their cycles, I kind of ask them to pull back on it whilst doing fertility treatment because we just don't know its role in interacting with hormones that mm -hmm. uh, we need in order to achieve them an outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell people there's it, it's you can focus on zinc and B6, but truly it's going to be a drop in the ocean in the context of the time frame that you're often looking at with, say, IVF or conception where people wanted to be pregnant last week. Um, and so it's it's not harmful to consider, but it's probably not going to give you this big powerful effect that you're looking for. And if there's a cycle dysfunction like functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we've had a podcast um, on as well, and PCOS, for example, which is highly amenable, they're both highly amenable to lifestyle interventions in improving the cycle, the menstrual cyclicity, that's not, again, that's not going to happen overnight either. It's going to take usually months of strategies to to come into play so there's no uh turbocharge boost of progesterone that's going to come from a dietary perspective but sensible lifestyle strategy certainly isn't going to hurt and then of course that's the role for somebody like yourself to to think about the medical strategy so you talked briefly about the different modalities that progesterone can come in as tablet intramuscular injection pessaries talk to me about what what all those are and I guess some insight into you know everyone's like oh maybe the injection would have been better or you know they they worry about the form that they're getting it in and so is there much difference or is it kind of matched depending on their situation yeah <laughs> how do I answer that in one minute um so I think it's important to understand that the biochemistry has changed. So, so the production of and the refinement of these hormones has changed over time. We predominantly use or historically use micronized progesterone in a pessary form um, for mucosal uptake. So a lot of women would know that as 
their vaginal pessaries that they use. And that's because it seems to be the easiest way to uptake it into the human body and have, have the best blood levels of these hormones. Traditionally, way back at the beginning of the whole assisted reproduction journey, progesterone was actually given intramuscularly. And if you look, do a deep dive into the research, it, it appears that you get better pregnancy rates with intramuscular progesterone. But that requires a woman to be giving herself the equivalent of a vaccine, an intramuscular injection every single day. Like the treatment burden of that is enormous and it's not without risk. You know, women can get infections and develop abscesses and, and those sorts of things. So it isn't our pre preferred way of giving it, but it certainly probably is the most effective. Um, another way is to think about supporting the corpus luteum. So some people will give HCG injections. You might know it as, as Ovidril. We used to use a drug which isn't available at the moment called Pregnal. Um, and that's to actually support the corpus luteum production of progesterone. So that's another way of, of giving it. Some people also might know of uh, recombinant LH, so, for example, a drug called uh, Luvris, for example. Um, but that's a super expensive <laughs> drug to be giving someone every single day, and it's got quite a shorter lifespan. So we tend to use the HCG drugs as injections to support the corpus luteum. So there's, there's lots of different ways of using them, and often we'll start with the least impactful, so the pessaries first, and then if we're still seeing things, for example, like spotting uh, occurring despite what we think is reasonable support, we'll move to the more invasive ways. I think oral progesterones are having a little bit, bit more of a comeback. Um, so Provera is a hormone that you might know of. Some people are using this as well. But we're really yet to see um, its true benefit over the other forms. So watch this space in the research. Mm, it would be so much easier to do a tablet. Though, it would be. Pessary. It would be. messy. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Every time a client is like, twice a day, Steph, twice a day. And I'm like, mm, oh, I'm Try the three times a day and try the lying down for half an hour when you're at work. Like, how is that practicable? <laughs> I get truly, it. Totally get it. truly, it is a juggle. <laughs> now, switching gears to talk a little bit about miscarriage, because I have noticed a lot of, I guess, attention request by clients that, you know, they want that reassurance of having progesterone into their pregnancy, say, after a successful IVF transfer to try and sustain the pregnancy because they're feeling a little bit fearful that if their progesterone drops out that they'll lose the pregnancy. And I'm seeing that more research is being directed in this area. So is it true, I mean, this is a very black and white statement, but what's the state of play with supplementing progesterone and risk of miscarriage? Is there something to that? Yeah. All right, let me try and step through this. So... There's miscarriage and there's recurrent miscarriage. So one, so 25%, one in five, one in four women will have a miscarriage at some time in their reproductive life, particularly if they've had multiple pregnancies. So that's one area. And then there's recurrent miscarriage. So depends in the world where you are as to the definition of recurrent miscarriage, but let's call it two to three uh, pregnancies um, in a consecutive way. 
currently miscarrying. All right, so just put it in that context. Now, um, there was a meta-analysis, which is a kind of a study of lots of studies that looked at the role of progesterone in reducing just one-off miscarriages, sporadic miscarriages, um, and it was not shown to help. So we don't give progesterone to every woman just to reduce their chance of getting a miscarriage. But they did do a subgroup analysis of recurrently miscarrying women, and it did suggest a reduction in, in miscarriage rates compared to a placebo. But there were only three very small studies studied in the meta-analysis. So the answers really weren't clear. Do we give progesterone to reduce the chances of recurrent miscarriage? So then there was this big trial done called the PROMISE trial and offered lots of promise. <laughs> we thought, right, this is going to be the answer to this question. And the outcome of that study said that progesterone supplementation in the first weeks of pregnancy, the first trimester of pregnancy, do not improve outcomes in women with unexplained recurrent miscarriage. So ba-bam, we thought the, the great panacea, giving every woman who's had recurrent miscarriages progesterone is going to fix them. It didn't suggest that. What was interesting in that trial, however, is that whether someone had a history of recurrent miscarriage or not, most of them went on to have healthy pregnancies. So that that was really encouraging from that study. And they also did actually show that there were no harmful effects by supplementing in progesterone. So that was also really encouraging that we don't get scared about giving women progesterone support if they really want it, right? It just is not necessarily going to show benefit. Then there was a trial called the PRISM trial, which looked at the role of progesterone for women who have bleeding in early pregnancy. Forget the miscarriage. And when they supplemented in, compared to a placebo, so randomised control trial, they when they supplemented into women who had bleeding in early pregnancy, progesterone supplementation also did not reduce the chances of or change the chances of them having a live birth. So it didn't improve their outcome, uh, but it also didn't cause harm either. So meh, we don't know, therefore, that we should really give it to women who have bleeding in early pregnancy. We don't think it affects the outcome. But again, in this PRISM trial, they did a further analysis of women who had a history of recurrent miscarriage and they also had bleeding in early pregnancy. And in fact, there was a significant improvement in, in ongoing pregnancy rates. So we think, therefore, that the, the role of progesterone supplementation is best in women who've had recurrent pregnancy loss and they have bleeding in early pregnancy. We think that's actually the population of women who are going to benefit from having progesterone supplementation in early pregnancy. Am I necessarily going to withhold it from a woman who's had recurrent pregnancy loss no, I'm not, because the harm is not there. And if it helps them with their anxiety, then I think that it will definitely help. And given that we know biologically um, it does reduce that contractility of the endometri of the uh, uterine muscle and uh, it has a role in reducing preterm birth, then it seems reasonable to give it, as long as women understand that the research is not necessarily shown that it's going to be of benefit in, pre in preventing recurrent miscarriage.
Mm, fascinating. Thank you for yeah. stepping us through all those analyses because it is it is tricky to navigate all of that as a patient who obviously don't spend their time reading journal articles and attending conferences to be on top of all this stuff. Um, So, no, I really appreciate that. And it sounds like potentially they need to maybe even look at higher-powered studies as well to really get a better snapshot. Yeah, requires more people, more, people. <laughs> more money. More people, yeah. more money yeah. <laughs> every time. <laughs> now, Dr. Tamara, if a listener is concerned about their progesterone levels when they're trying to conceive or otherwise, whether it be in the context of IVF, what would their first steps be? Maybe they listen to this and they're like, oh, I'm a bit concerned. Are there signs that they should be looking out for? What's their next step? Oh, Okay. So I think it's really important to talk with someone who understands REI, reproductive endocrinology and infertility. I think it's really vitally important because what I see in a lot of patients is just that confusion of diving down the rabbit hole of Dr. Google, getting on Facebook groups, or that. I think that that can potentially do more harm than good. So I think go and talk to someone who really understands this process. I don't believe there is a role for natural supplements. I, I feel like this mu- ends up muddying the waters. And, again, I refer to situations where I've had women come in on things like chaste supplements or evening primrosal and they come in and they say, oh, it's regulated my cycle but I'm not falling pregnant. Well, that's because it's kind of just put a Band-Aid on it. Um, tracking the cycle is really important. So, meeting again with someone who understands REI and actually using blood tests and ultrasounds, tracking the cycle, particularly in that luteal phase, that second half of the cycle, and matching it to symptoms. Are you getting spotting in the few days leading into when the period starts? How is that related to your progesterone levels? What does the endometrium look like? So that sort of information is, I think, really, really important. And then when you're seeing your your specialist in this area, taking that progesterone supplementation as recommended in whatever form. Advice. And I always just tell people to go and see their doctor because truly what I'm going to do is just going to delay you going to the doctor and Correct. get the answer. So just go and go and sort it out. We can work on absolutely other stuff. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to do so. But uh, the progesterone piece is really, you know, if there's a true issue there, it's not going to be overcome with a great diet, sadly, in almost all instances. Thank you for sharing your incredible knowledge and expertise with us, Dr. Hunter. I really appreciate your time. Are there any last tidbits that you want to share with our listeners on this topic or otherwise to leave them with a a little message? I think it's important to be present on the journey. Uh, A lot of women are thinking, well, women particularly, are thinking months and years ahead. They're not thinking about right now. And I think that can contribute to a lot of the anxiety of this journey. Uh, I I don't know of a, a woman, a man or a couple that hasn't been really emotionally, socially, mentally, physically affected by this journey. So one thing I can say, just be present in the journey, don't don't be planning your life six months in in advance. It does it doesn't help you. Um, try and relinquish the control 
which is really hard when you're a high-functioning woman, isn't it, Steph, to relinquish that control to the people that have, you know, spent the time and effort to do the research and study in this area. They know what they're talking about. Live a moderate life. You know, you don't, you don't have to abstain completely from alcohol or wrap yourself up in cotton wool or, or go and do 20 CrossFit classes a week. Like just live a really moderate life in this process and, and that's honestly the best that you can do for your body um, and try as hard as you can to enjoy the journey. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky path to walk, any delay in conception, but, um, you know, most of the time, most of the time we get where we want to be in the end and we can look back and know that it was all for a good reason. <laughs> yeah, and you know, just be kind to yourself, I think. Be really mm. kind to yourself and know that there's lots of learning that happens in the journey if you stay present to it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Can you give a plug for all of your socials, website where people can find you if they want to book a consult in WA? Do you offer telehealth? Tell us more. <coughs> okay. <laughs> so you can find me uh, on Instagram, Dr. Tamara Hunter. Every Tuesday night I do something called a rapid-fire Q&A session so people can get on live and just drop some questions and, oh, without answering your life story, I can try and answer, <laughs> I can try and answer them. Um, you can also find me on Facebook as well, Dr. Tamara Hunter. My holistic women's health practice is called The Womb. Womb is spelled W-O-O-M, so you can find us on the web and also on Insta and Facebook as well. I currently work as a fertility specialist at Pivot Medical Centre and you can also find me there. Incredible. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge. I know this is going to be so valuable to our listeners and the wider community and I can't wait to share it with them all. If you're still listening, please Leave us a rating and review. Five stars would be delightful. It really is a free and easy way that you can help support the podcast and it gets us out to more people. Hit subscribe, follow, share it with a family member, friend or colleague that you feel would benefit from this episode. And I will catch you in the next one, everyone. Bye. (laughs)